Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with Hall of Famer, the great Johnny Bench. He's off. Bench throwing. They got it. Johnny Bench to Joe Morgan, and it was a no-contest play at second base. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program, I sit down with a 14-time All-Star, a two-time World Series champ, and he was ducted in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Ladies and gentlemen, Johnny Bench. Johnny, thanks for coming on the program. Happy to be here. Happy to be here, yeah, especially how many you've done already. My gosh, this number 100, you said? I think we're around 100. And oh, uh, cool. Johnny, today, how how'd you recover from the uh, Cincinnati Reds legend softball game? For you guys listening out there on the Boone podcast, Johnny and myself just a few weeks back, it was actually a pretty cool event. It was Marty Brenneman's uh, <laughs> Hall of Fame. It rained on us a little bit, but we got the guys together, had a good time. And I got a story for you. How have you recovered from it? You know, I'm glad to hear you say that because it was kind of interesting. You know how how, how Barry Larkin, how much excitement he is. Anyway, he was like, uh, we should do this. I don't know if we want to do this. I don't. And after the after it was over, he said, you know, are we going to do it again? I said, well, it's kind of up to you, Barry. And he said, I, I really enjoyed myself. And I'm telling you, so many guys had so much fun, but it was great to be back with everybody. Great to see each other. You know, what you're doing, how are you? Everything's going like in your life and, and sort of catch up. But the respect, I think, that each of us had for one another as being a Red, but first of all, for uh, our accomplishments on the field, to, to be able to be invited back as a legend, as it was, and, uh, and having a heck of a crowd. A heck of a crowd came out. And, of course, you were the star. <laughs> yeah, sure. I, I th- Johnny, I, th- I thought it was really cool because as we, you know, this game is so, you know, this is what we do. This is our whole life and life moves on. And the farther and farther you get away from the game, it's just so cool for me to come back and see, you know, Johnny Bench and Concepcion and the Big Red Machine and then go to my era and I get to hang out with Lark and, and Eric Davis and Chris Sabo. And then you see some of the young guys, you know, that are that are freshly retired. But you look around that room. I don't know, but I think franchise to franchise, I, I'd put that group up there against any franchise in, in Major League Base. Maybe the Cardinals could rival us a little bit, the Yankees. But that was that was a pretty strong show out. Yeah, I mean, for a small small market, and of course, we we reach back to the seventies, and and you guys helped carry on the tradition. But it was, it's you know, there's a respect that they had. It's the the love that the Cincinnati folks have for us and everything else. But uh, you know, the names resounded. You know, I'm a big fan. I mean, let's face it, I'm a fan of baseball, but I'm a fan of the players. I, I was a fan of yours. I I'd still remember jerking your chain one day, and I said, you know. Brett, you've got the strongest, the best hands in baseball. Why in the hell are you trying to use your body? And, well, needless to say, the hands worked for a hell of a time. All-star teams and everything else, which is pretty damn special. And I'm proud of what you did. But I've been, you know, I've been part of the Boone family for so long. In in, in the essence of, of Bob, I mean, Bob was such a, Wonderful. My God, what a competitor. He was one of my all-time, he was one of my all-time people, all-time guys. 
he went out there every day. He would ice his knees down. He would, you know, he didn't put up the offensive numbers. He didn't do anything. But for calling a game and being able to be back there every, every day, you know, I admired him so much. So I, I sort of, you know, and then to see it grow and see Aaron and to see you. And it was, it's always been kind of special with the whole Boone family. I think it's a, I think a lot of people would say, gosh, you know, I'm really kind of jealous. I mean, you guys accomplished so much in that family. So uh, when we start getting back together and we start seeing our friends and seeing guys that, you know, how in the heck are you? And it, it made them feel good. I could just tell in, in the uh, in the locker room. And, you know, we were kind of restricted for, you know, the COVID thing and all the stuff. But all of these guys, you know, and I don't think any of them really fell out of place. There's always going to be one or two that are the younger ones that still have that, you know, the big red machine in the background and then the nasty boys and all that. But it was a very special day for me. Yeah, it was very cool. All right, let's get right to it. Most underappreciated member of the Big Red Machine? Uh, probably Cesar. Geronimo. You know, gold, gold glove center fielder, hit 300 a couple of years. Uh, what people didn't realize was he had an eight-foot stride, which uh, most people and most outfielders have six-foot strides. Uh, Cesar. One of the most accurate arms I've ever seen in baseball, uh, Ken Griffey, uh, just a guy that could beat out an infield single. He would steal a base. He was solid defensively. Uh, he was an everyday guy. Uh, we all know the, the the big four, the grade eight was there. I mean, Davey, I think, is a Hall of Famer. Uh, George, what he did, accomplished. But Cesar was one of the guys that was really solidified the outfield. I mean, you do have to – have a job to do. And when you can win a gold glove in center field with that, you know, and he wasn't, he didn't have to dive, you know, he never really had to to dive for the ball. He was always there. Great judgment, great deal. And just a solid citizen in the clubhouse and, and just a wonderful gentleman throughout his career. You know, and, and every time I have somebody on from your generation, uh, you know, Reds or, or Phillies, or we had Dave Parker on the program, you know, p- part of those big Pittsburgh Pirates teams of the 70s. That's my childhood. And, you know, we all have our favorite generation. Usually we're partial to the generation we played played in. But I'm kind of partial just because of my family and growing up, you know, with dad playing for the Phillies. I remember those times in the seventies where it was, you know, there was two teams that made it to the playoffs every year. So it wasn't, you know, this wild card and all these teams. And I just remember the big red machine coming to town. I remember the big, bad buckos coming to town as we got to the late seventies, those, <laughs> those expos teams were really good. You go to the West coast. Didn't it seem, it seemed like back then for a team like the Phillies, you know, obviously I'm going to be partial to them, but They'd be making that West Coast trip. It seemed like they were going to a different country. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, oh. to play the Dodgers and the Padres. Uh, but I remember, you, you know, the thing times. you mentioned, Brett, was the was the was the Expos. Yeah, you know, had they had they played on one of those majors teams? My goodness, oh, what talent! Oh, what talent! The lumber company, and you're right. I mean, it was Death Valley when you went out west. I mean, you go out there, you got to play the Padres, the Giants, and the Dodgers. And you just hoped that you could win, you know, come back 500. I mean, for whatever reason, whether it be the, you know, the fatigue, the travel, you know, the jet lag, whatever it was. But, uh, I mean, my gosh, the Dodgers, there were some great rivalries in those days. And, you know, the Phillies won some uh, really battling with the Pirates all the time to win that division over there. 
And like you said, there was only two teams make the playoff. It was it was uh, down to the wire. I mean, I'm not sure what you feel about what's happening with the wild card now, but it, you know, I mean, it's up, it's down. Now they're in. Now they're out. They're tied for second. They're tied for, and it that that it, I think shows a lot of interest. But back in those days, man, I mean, you could, and you know, I know you could still name the starting lineups on all those teams. I on the Pirates, on the yeah, Phillies, yeah. on the Reds, and that's when. Uh, when baseball fans really appreciated the, the game of baseball, because not, not everybody was, you know, changing teams so fast, and they were there was come some kind of allegiance, but of course there was also the you know not as much free agency coming. It was just coming in towards the end of the seventies. Yeah, you know, and you mentioned the wild card. Now, I, I think as we go forward and the game evolves, uh, you know, some good, some bad, but. I think it is good for the game of baseball. I think it's good for the cities. I think it's good for the fans. I think it draws more interest to have more teams, you know, per se in it down the stretch versus, you know, back in the day, you could be eliminated and you know, you're pretty much not going to make it at the all-star break. So I think from a, from a fan, from a vernacular, I I don't know, just for the good of the game and and the excitement, who's going to make it, who's not. uh, I think it's better to have more teams involved. The thing I don't like Johnny is I'm looking at it right now. I look at that America or that National League West, and you got the Giants, probably the best division in baseball. You got the Giants and the Dodgers atop the division, and then you got the Padres, who who recently have fell on some hard times, but but a tough division, top to bottom. The Dodgers could win a hundred games this year and be the wild card, and then it comes down to a one game playoff. It just seems criminal <laughs> criminal to me to play 162, win a hundred games. And maybe Scherzer just has a bad day and it's, it's over. Poof, it's over. I think they should make it at least a two out of three for that wild card if they're going to keep the, uh, the current schedule the way it is. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I just think it's, you know, one and done is just really kind of we, – we've seen it. We've seen it in a one-game playoff. We saw the Reds lose in a one-game playoff for the Mets. We've seen those different ones that have happened and everything else. But, again, you're right. I mean, there's so many so many right now. I mean, even Seattle was only two or three games back. Here's Tampa Bay. Here's Toronto. I mean, we've got Toronto now playing Tampa Bay, so now they're making deals. Is everybody's going to break 500? Here's the Cardinals who were three or four games out the other day. Now they're back. Now they're ahead of the Reds. Now you've got, you know, Milwaukee running away with it, of course. But then you, all right, here's the Padres. The Padres looked like they were shooing. Now they're trailing. You got the Yankees and the Red Sox. And you, I mean, you're watching all of this. And for the fan, if I'm a fan in those cities, I have no interest at all, except wait a minute. They got a wild card chance. And so now all of a sudden, let's go to the game. And you're right. It's the enthusiasm. It's the interest that's been shown. It's the, you know, uh, all of that excitement that is created within those cities, just even the opportunity. And they're they're thrilled to have a one-game chance. I mean, that's the way they're looking at it. For us, we're looking how, how gee, many, you know, you're set up to have Scherzer pitch against you. You're, you're set up against uh, Robbie Ray, or you're set, set up with some of these guys that have had phenomenal years. And while that's going on, of course it should be that these teams that have won their division are setting up with uh, Woodruff, Woodruff, Woodruff and uh, and uh, the kid up there, that other right-hander they got. I, I, I See, I should have that because he's oh, and, 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 Milwaukee. and Milwaukee. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they got Peralta and they got the kid Burns. And I mean, these are guys that, you know, boom, boom, boom. Then you got, you know, all right, what's the Cardinals going to do? They got Wainwright. And then they've had so much pitching problems. The Reds haven't been able to run a a rotation out there. You got Sonny Gray. You got uh, Miley, who's pitched well. But, you know, but all you say, it's one game, have a bad day, have a bad hop, one bloop, a dinger, and and it's all over. And it's, and down the road you go, and now you got to prepare for the next one, and your pitching's not set up. But boy, have you seen so much thunder as we've seen this year? You know, I'm looking. I'm talking to my son Bobby today, and I'm looking through some of the stats. I like. I love to watch box scores. I love to watch stats. The kid Tuscar Hernandez up in yeah. Toronto. Yeah, he's got 103 RBIs and 28 home runs. Bichette's got 26 home runs and 96 RBIs. You got Guerrero. You got Springer, you got, oh, I mean, and then the thunder. And then you go to a team like Tampa Bay, who you said, or to, or San Francisco, who, who, and, and I felt like, you know, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance kid, who in the hell are those guys? Yeah. You, they, they got no numbers. They got no numbers in San Francisco. Nope. I, I, and I can, and I look to it. Tampa Bay, Johnny is, I don't even know what to say when I'm asked about it. I said, they're like in a different, I don't know. They they don't count. It's like they they draft so well, they develop their players so well. Whatever the atmosphere they got going over there, a lot of other teams should check it out because it's a bunch of guys that are good baseball players. They play all over the they play all over the diamond. There's no big stars. They brought Nelson Cruz over, but there's no real big stars on that team, and they just win games. They've got a, a great camaraderie. Uh, great team atmosphere and they just win. And, and it's amazing to me. And it's, it's, uh, it's just, they a play defense. How good of a they'll, yeah. they'll have five pitchers, one to get one game. Yeah. They'll start another guy who throws a shutout. Then they'll pitch five pitchers the next day. And they've got, and it's just like, you know, sometimes you take a person, basically uh, take a player who's a good team player. He knows his role. He fits into this part. That's what Sparky would always do. Sparky would say, he would call us in the office and say, what do you think about so-and-so? I said, it wouldn't fit. We, he asked us, and we say, no, it wouldn't fit. Because you're looking at guys that we have to know their role, and they're, when they're out there every day, they're performing at the highest level. I mean, I think it's a beautiful thing. I, I get so in awe of what, like you said, Tampa Bay is doing with their drafting, with their skills of, of trading for people, of making decisions, and they're putting guys out there that – you know, here's Meadows. I mean, here's here's Low. Here's and now they get the kid Franco coming up, and they got you know and and Zanino. I mean, here's here's Mike, who's you know all of a sudden finally got over two hundred, which doesn't make a difference anymore. I mean, but he's got thirty home runs, and it's so much talent. And then you look at Boston, and and you know you got Davis and all those guys that are hitting thirty home runs and forty home runs and driving in a hundred. I mean. It's, it is so exciting to see some of these young kids, and we're accepting it because they're hitting home runs. We don't care about the strikeouts, but we're accepting it. And the guy hits his ninth or tenth home run, and he's running around the bases, you know, doing cha-chas and flamingos and doing all the stuff, and like he's, like he's done it so many times all yeah. year. There goes and, the, <laughs> and the fan, the fans are going crazy. All right, all right, man, what a great player. How many home runs he got? Well, that was his ninth. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so true. It's so true. All right. 
Born and raised in Oklahoma. I want to hear Johnny Bench as a kid. What was your childhood like? I was three and a half years old when I was watching TV with my dad and Mantle, Mickey Mantle was at the plate. My dad had served two hitches in the war, so he never got the chance to fulfill his dream of being a catcher in the major leagues. He, he hoped that one of his kids would be. But all we did was play in the backyard. We, we When I first moved, when I was first born, we lived in a town of about 200, and, 200 people. Then we moved to the big metropolis of 661 people, Binger, Oklahoma, just like finger with a B. And I was six years old when dad started the little league team. First time anybody had played baseball. And we rode around the back of the pickup truck, our little Levi's and a T-shirt. We'd go around and knock on doors, try to find another kid to play, make nine. And we'd go play and we'd lose. And my dad said, that's all right, we'll get them tomorrow. And we kept playing. We practiced. We had home run derby. We played a game called 10 Can. And by the end of the year, we played pretty good. We actually played a team that was undefeated, and we beat them. And they were over there crying. And my dad would say, I said, Dad, what's wrong with him? He said, they haven't learned to lose yet, son. Let's go get a cheeseburger. And we went and got a cheeseburger. And we played. And I told Dad at three and a half when Mickey Mantle was on the, air, on the, uh, on the, the uh, broadcast, the game of the week, and they announced that he was from Oklahoma, next superstar. And I said, you can be from Oklahoma and play in the major leagues. That's what I want to be. And he said, well, catching was the quickest way to the major leagues and what the major leagues needed. So I was a catcher. I just never caught. Everybody knew I was a catcher. I took infield as a catcher. I was a pitcher. I was 84 and three lifetime pitching. And But we only had 10 out for the baseball team and nine out for the basketball team. And we played baseball and then played basketball. And then when it was – we started school early – in early August, first of August, so that we could let school out for three weeks so we could harvest the crops because my dad had a propane business and I actually drove the propane truck to deliver gas to the farms. I chopped cotton, chopped peanuts, baled cotton, baled the hay, I combined peanuts, pulled cotton, had the paper out, delivered the delivered the newspaper. And I would and I knew I can tell you, honestly, I'd I'd be running down the road because I was always running, trying to get in shape. And I'd be running down there and these cars would be passing. And I I would think to myself, I wonder if they know who I will be. And in the fifth grade, I made a C in penmanship was the worst grade I made. And I was so embarrassed that I, because I was going to be famous. And I, uh, so I went down to uh, Texaco Station, Ford McKinney's Texaco Station. And I practiced writing my name so I could practice my autograph like John Hancock. So that my uh, my when I signed my autograph, it, you, it, they'd be able to read it a hundred years from now, because I was wow. going to be a major league catcher. I'll tell you what I I think that's so cool because uh, you know I didn't I didn't acquire the accolades you did, but I had a similar I had a similar thought process when I was a kid. You know they'd ask me, "What are you going to do?" Oh, I'm going to play in the big leagues for 15 years. All right, Brett. Really though, you know I'm in with my high school counselor. What's your backup plan? Well, I don't have a backup plan. What are you talking about? Don't you, don't you know who I'm going to be? And and I truly believe, you know, Johnny, as we watch these, you know, and I have a son now playing in the minor leagues. And as I watch these young kids come into professional baseball, I look for that kid that truly believes what he says out loud. And the guy that truly believes, however, he's very naive and he's about to get humbled by this game of professional baseball. But if you truly believe you got a chance and and I love hearing stories like that, you were writing your name because I'm going to be famous and you're going to want my autograph. 
you truly believed it at, at an early age. You you probably didn't know what was about to hit you and how hard it was going to be. But the fact that you had that belief probably is 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 a part of the reason you became who you became. Well, had they told me that, Johnny, one in every 500,000 kids that play, played Little League Baseball ever sign a contract, only 7% of theirs ever make it to the major leagues. <laughs> that. So I would have knocked you down and said, right, so, but you said so. I'm, I'm I would have said that. so. I would have said so. What's the problem? I'm I'm the I'm that one. I'm that one. You know, I I don't know. I mean, I I took in every you know, I took I took my education seriously. I took my basketball seriously. I was honorable mention all American in basketball, a slow kid. I could, you know, but I I took everything to try to really be good at it no matter what it was. I mean, if I pulled cotton, I wanted a two cents a pound. I got $6. I pulled 300 pounds of cotton. I bought a pair of every regular Levi's. I mean, so it was, it was what we were, but you know, I showed up at 17. I got in school a year early. My mom enrolled me and I was, it, she didn't realize the enrollment. So I was in school a year early. So I was 17 when I graduated and I got on the plane from Oklahoma city to Tampa, Florida, my first airplane. And I got there, I got to Tampa and they took me to the ballpark, put me in a uniform, warmed up the pitcher in the seventh inning, warmed up the pitch, uh, pitcher at home plate in the eighth inning and caught the ninth inning of the ball game. 17 wow. years of age. Yeah. You know, it's, so, a, it, it's uh, go ahead. That's where I was supposed to be. <laughs> yeah. I, it's, it's, it's amazing in this professional game. It's so, it's so hard. It's so unique, but it, but it's so cool. You mentioned your dad told you, Johnny, the quickest way to the big leagues is as a catcher. You know, you and dad obviously caught in the same era. Both, both played a long time. And I remember as a kid and, you know, you guys were always off playing. So by the time dad was going to the ballpark, that was when my little league practice or my little league game would start. So dad wasn't around that often. He didn't get a chance to see me play that much. And he's always, he'd always tell me the opposite. He said, Brett, you're a shortstop. Said the last thing you do is catch. You go there when you can't play another position. And, and I'm telling you, one day physically he came. I, I, I was so excited to put on the gear because I'm like, I want to know what it's like to be a catcher. And I put on the catcher's gear. And dad came to my little league practice and physically removed me from the field and said, <laughs> You're a shortstop and you're the best player on the field. That's where the shortstop plays. Until they tell you you can't be a shortstop anymore, you're going to play short. So it's it's really interesting how we got there. Uh, you mentioned 17. You signed with the Reds. Your second-round pick in the 65 draft. Uh, and you're off to pro ball. You know what was interesting to me? You said you went to Tampa right away. But in 1966, you played in Peninsula, correct? Carolina, yeah. You know what? That was my – that's where they sent me. I signed with the Mariners in 1990. My first assignment, I went from the University of Southern California to beautiful Peninsula. And I'll guarantee in 66 it was in better shape than it was in 90. But, uh, <laughs> you know, they had that – That you remember that uh, – War That's Memorial Stadium. War Memorial. Stonewall in the outfield. You run into that, you're, you're not getting up. Well, they had a they had a uh, sign. One of the one of the advertisers had a sign. It was a clothing company, left center field. If you hit it over that sign, you got a suit of clothes. I had five of the prettiest suits you've ever seen in your life. I was, <laughs> I, I launched there. I launched there. Oh my gosh! What a you know. I I went to I went to spring training, and I was eighteen, 
and Don Hefner was the manager and it called me in. And of course, you know, it's, it's what managers need or have to say or do. He says, Johnny, let me tell you something right now. I could take you to the big leagues, but you'd be a third string catcher and that wouldn't do you any good. I want you to be a big fish in a little pond to start with. And that's when I went to Carolina league and it was, it was horrible. I mean, not only I say horrible. We had to drive as the Carolina league, as it's called, we would drive from, you know, Hampton, Newport news to Kenston, Wilson, Greensboro, all those things, Raleigh, Durham. And then we'd have to bus back after the game. It was like six, seven hours sometimes. And it was a school bus. And I would sleep in that luggage rack up above. I mean, and you get into three or four in the morning and that was the life, you know, you got $3 a day meal money. And I got called up at the end of that year. Well, yeah, the end of in the July 31st, I got called up to uh, Indianapolis for AAA. And the first inning, third hitter, foul ball, foul ball off my thumb and broke it. And I never got to never got to even appear in the game. And then I went back there the next year and things went well. So, uh, yeah, to be in the major leagues at 19 was pretty cool. I mean, I. Uh, I, I, I remember being called into the office in Tampa and Carolina league and pinky may was, uh, Milt may's dad. Milt was our bat boy. And, uh, he called me into the office and he showed me a, a, a thing from the reds down on the farm. It was called guy named Herc Robinson was the guy. And he, he, they wrote about, you know, what was happening in their, in their organization down on the farm and said, Johnny bench, who could be the next catcher in Cincinnati. Well, look, like, how in the hell? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm like, really? They know the hell who I am, where I am? I mean, it was like really cool. You know, and I go to, I go up to Indiana or to Buffalo. I go home and then I'm driving up to Wichita, Kansas to see a, a kid I played American Legion ball with. And I'm driving back to Oklahoma City to stay with my brother. And a four lane highway, I pulled out to pass this bus. And here's the drunk driver on the wrong side of the four lane. And I hit the brakes, hit me right in the door. And uh, I didn't I didn't gain consciousness until I got into the ambulance, until they put me in the ambulance. And I got to the doctor, got to the hospital and medical in the emergency room. And the doctor came in and said, son, you got the biggest bones I've ever seen in my life. He said, nobody else would walk out of here, but you'll pay the price one day. And so with the, the disc problems in the back, the, the two hip replacements and everything else, my knees have never been touched, but yeah, I've, I've paid the price, but you know, it's, it's like hanging on my wall is the thing that Garth and uh, Tony Arado wrote. Our lives are better left to chance. I could have missed the pain, but I've had to miss the dance. And so catching was the thing that uh, you paid it. You worked hard at it. You suffered the consequences, but man, was it worth it? Yeah, pretty awesome. 67, you get to the big leagues at 19, cup of coffee. But 68 is when you become the cat, the, the regular catcher. And this is where it all starts off. And, and it's so interesting, your story. I did uh, Yvonne Rodriguez a few years ago. Or, or I'm sorry, a few weeks ago, he came, on, he came on the podcast. And as I was doing my homework for, for Johnny Bench, uh, I was seeing a lot of similarities, both young players, both coming up, both Hall of Famers. And at 68 – you're the all-star, your rookie, your first all-star game, your rookie of the year. 
you win a gold glove, which is the beginning of 10 in a row, and you're, you're an all-star for the first time in the next 13 years, you're an all-star. And that's very similar to Pudge. And I went, wow, I'm doing Johnny in a couple weeks. And, and the numbers and the way you started off are so similar. And, and you both ended up in Cooperstown. But uh, tell me about – tell me if this is an old, old legend or, or, or there's some truth to it. In the offseason, Jim Maloney – I believe it's after the 68 season. Spring training maybe? You're catching Maloney. No, 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 no. All right, no, figure it out. No. All right, you take it from there. 1968, I, I was a foregone conclusion I'd probably be the starting catcher because they traded Johnny Edwards. Don Pavletic had an unbelievable spring, and Dave Bristol wanted to prove a point. So he started Don Pavletic as the opening day catcher. He caught the first four game, and the fifth game he pulled a hamstring, and I caught 154 of the next 158. I caught 54 days in a row without a day off. 54 days in a row without a day off. We are playing. Uh, we played Saturday night till about oh, one 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 thirty. I left the ballpark at two. Got to bed at three. Had to be dressed at ten o'clock the next day at Crosley Field. We're playing the Dodgers. I have now. This is my fifty second day in a row without a day off, and we are getting beat ten to nothing in the fifth or sixth inning. And they bring in Jerry Arrigo, good you know left hander, big good curveball, everything else. I am so worn out. And Jerry comes in and I call fastball and he said, no, I call curveball. No, call curveball. No, call curveball. No. And I said, all right, throw the fastball. I put down the one. He threw it outside. I have no earthly idea. I just reached out and barehanded it and threw it back to him. I just couldn't move anymore. (laughs) I was too tired. I was too tired. Oh, uh, you know, you mentioned that first all-star game. I was sitting in my locker at the Astrodome and I'm sitting right directly across the other side of the, the locker room is Willie Mays. And I'm, I'm picked up as a backup catcher and I'm not moving out of my locker because I'm not going to spike anybody. I mean, here goes, here goes Gibson by, here goes this, and all the great all-stars of that era. And Willie walked across the, the clubhouse to my locker and looked at me and said, you should have been the starting catcher. And there wasn't anything else in my life that I needed at that time. That was the greatest, one of the greatest moments. So special, so special. What a great man. That That is cool. And, and you, you talk about your first All-Star game. You played in a ton of them. You played in 14. But I remember my first All-Star game. And I, and I was like you said, I was just, you know, I'd been in the big leagues a few years. And I finally got that call. And I remember getting to Colorado and sitting in the locker and I got you know, bonds over here. And, and I'm just looking at the greatest players in the game and I'm going, this is really cool. And, and I, <laughs> and you know me, Johnny, I like to talk for, for one of the first times in my life, I was kind of silent. I said, I don't care if I play, I don't care if I don't play. I'm here and I'm with the greatest players in the world. This is, you know, when you're a kid, you dream about this. And I don't know, for me, uh, I, I wouldn't think they'd ever get old, but that first one is, is definitely special. Yeah, I didn't get in until the ninth inning in that first All-Star game, and they and Red, Red Shainings was a manager, and he didn't want to put me in because he didn't have any other catchers. And these other coaches stood up and went, went after He said, Red, you got to put this kid in. He, he deserves to be in the game. And I caught the ninth inning of the ball game with Jerry Kuzman. Yeah, that's the way it worked. And then the next year we were in, in, the, uh, in Washington – for the all-star game. And I was, I was actually 
I was in the military. I did army. I was army reserve. I was doing my two week summer camp at AP Hill at that time. And they gave me a special release to come release, a release to come to the ballpark, a pass to play in the all-star game. And we got rained out. And I thought, oh no, we've been to the white house. We've met the president Nixon. And, and now they gave me another day off. And then my first at bat off Mel Stottlemyre hit a home run. So, it was uh, it was quite a quite a way to start an all star career, and that's how I think I came up with Jim Maloney. Sixty nine, you catch a no hitter, Jim Maloney. I, yeah. I think it's the only no hitter you caught. That's what I got confused about. The it was it was well. Everybody, everybody everybody kind of attributes that story to Jim Maloney. Great Jim Maloney, and of course back in those, that era, there was Gaylord Perry and Phil Regan, and they both had they were throw, they were both wetting it up and slippery, whatever the heck they were doing. They were putting on the ball and everything else. And Jim says to me, he said, I think I'm going to load a couple up. I said, what? He said, he threw 95. I mean, his ball was hard enough. It moved everything. It was one of the greatest right-handed pitchers ever. I'll put him up against anybody in a, in a starting game. That's that's Jim. Curveball, fastball, runner, and everything else. He said, I think I'll load. He was crazy. But, I mean, he, he said, I think I'll load some up. Maybe we should have a sign. I said, you throw it, I'll catch it. Well, two balls two and two outs, two strikes. He throws that thing, hits me right in the foot in the first inning. Second inning, two outs, two strikes. He throws it again, hits me on top of the shin guard and bounces all the way back to back to him. And and we're la- everybody's laughing but me. I mean, it's killing me. I said, we're going to have to have a sign. So for the that time, he had a little sign that even indicate that he would load it up. Well, one day we're in Pittsburgh in Forbes Field and the manager – yelled at me from the dugout. I looked over and then I said, Oh no, did he, did he give me the sign? He, does he have it loaded? So I got ready to catch it. This thing started about head high and went so hard down. It was just unbelievable. 94, 95 miles an hour. And it hit me right in the cup, broke it in seven places. And I said, that is the last time you'll throw that pitch. I will not go back here while that is happening. <laughs> no, no, See, no. These are the things. See, this is why I didn't catch Johnny. I didn't have to deal with crap like that. I just get out. That's there, right. That's my, why your dad you, did you a right. favor. You, you give me the sign. I relay it to my first baseman, whatever, change up fastball. All right. 1970. When your first most valuable player, you hit 45 jacks, driving 148. For a catcher, that. Oh, man, people don't understand. That's why catchers don't drive in that many runs, because they're not out there enough to drive in that many runs. But 148, wow. Um, and the home runs is an all-time record for a catcher, I believe. Yeah, um, I think there's a couple of guys, Piazza and a few guys. It's, it's all right. I mean, it's it's a different era, but it's all, it's great. I mean, it really is great. Now, at this time, you know, uh, Vladimir's now got the same number of home runs as I hit when I was 22. And then it, you know, and then two years later, I was MVP. And then four days after my birthday, when I was 24, four day, I turned 25. Four days afterwards, I had lung surgery, which they took out part of my lung. And uh, for the major surgery, I had developed a, a San Joaquin Valley fever. And uh, so I never had, I never was the same after that. But it was, uh, you know, it worked out well. We won two world championships. And I would love to have had, you know, I would love to put up numbers that I think were would have been better. And and away from the baseball a little bit, seventy and seventy one. Uh, Bob Hope, USO tour. 
Bob Hope would go overseas to entertain the troops. You got to go along with them. How, how that's got to kind of be eye opening for you. I, I had to call mom and dad because, you know, I'd never been away for Christmas. So in 1970, when I, when Bob called me and I'd had the MVP had just been announced and they called and they wanted to go, they wanted me to go with him. So they said, of course you're going, my gosh. So I go to Burbank, I get on the, you know, I go in the studio, we rehearse, we start singing. I, and I'm not, you know, I mean, I did, I, I sang in, in choir, you know, at school, you know, and you had music class and Mrs. Bowen gave me a B for singing. I had a, she said to you, if you hadn't sang so loud and off key, I'd have given you an A. But other than that, so we sang and we practiced and we went on a 12 day trip around the world. And, and we stopped in, you know, West Point. We stopped in Lake and Heath. We talked in Wiesbaden. We were on the John F. Kennedy. We went into Vietnam three times. We went to the good ship Hope in Korea. We went to, we went to, to Anchorage, Alaska. We performed there. We got back in 12 days to Burbank. And Bob Hope, well, my oldest son's name was Bobby after Bob Hope and Bobby Knight. The, the man was, he wanted you to make, wanted you to look good. He was trying to make, jokes for you he was he'd sit there and it just it was just wonderful but it was the meaning of being able and you felt somewhat awkward being in you know being in denang and long Bend and up near camp eagle near way and and doing these things and it was just but i got so much response from all of our troops and and, and it was it was uh it was so worth it and i did desert storms later with bob and dolores and aaron tippen and the pointy sisters and the osmonds and uh, you know, I, uh, gosh, I, you know, you start thinking about some of the things that, that have passed along your way. And of course, when I had lung surgery, you know, they said, you know, this could be the end of your career. And I said, well, you know, so I'll be president. So, you know what, I mean, let's, let's just move on to something else. I you know, I've had an unbelievable career. I've been in the world series. I've, I've been to the white house. I said, you know, this is a kid from Oklahoma graduating class of 21. And so how can, how can I be disappointed? I mean, I've achieved so many things. 71, you guys go to the first world series, 72, you win the most valuable player again, 40 homers, 125 ribbies. And I want to talk a little bit about, we've had, I, I had Reggie on, I had Raleigh fingers on Vita blue. And I had asked them, I said, you know, the big red machine and, and the great teams of, you know, Every generation has their great teams, the Yankees of the mid-90s. Uh, I often wonder about that A's team of the early 70s. You got to play them in the World Series. They won three in a row. Yeah. How good were they? Well, you know, in, a, in so many ways, they were Tampa Bay, but they had they had Reggie, you know, they had Raleigh. Uh, I don't think we identify with Tampa Bay like that, but they, you know, they had Dick Green, they had Campanaris, they had uh, – uh, Sal Bando, they had Joe, uh, North. I mean, uh, Rudy, Rudy, uh, uh, that's embarrassing. Uh, Joe, Rudy. Joe Rudy, Joe, Joe Rudy. Rudy. Yeah. And, and, you know, and they had North, I think. And it was just uh, Epstein was at first and then they had Gene Tennis, Gene Tennis, freaking Gene Tennis. My God, you don't, you throw, you don't, he's an out. He had four home runs, four home runs he hit in that series. And we went in the seventh game, and it was a misjudged fly ball in center field that cost us. And the thing I remember most was how McCray, with the bases loaded, hit a ball to the wall that Joe Rudy caught, turned into a sacrifice fly, 
and Hal McRae came back to the bench with tears in his eyes. And Hal and I were drafted both together, and we played together in 1965. Unbelievable hitter, unbelievable guy. But that's that's we were that close. We were that close. Al McRae, what a what a good dude. He was my hitting mm-hmm. coach on a couple different couple different times. I spent a lot of time in that cage with with Al McRae, and we'd talk the game. You know, we had a lot of heart to hearts about the game, his time, what he learned. Man, Hal was one of my favorite all times, and, and I'd always tease him. I said, Hal, man, they don't take guys out at second base like they used to. You see that video of Hal McRae, I mean, and and what you hear from from teammates of his, I mean, what you just said about Hal McRae has been echoed. You know, we had George Brett on the show. He he had the same type of words for Hal McRae. So it's kind of a, you know, a thing cross baseball. Anybody that's crossed paths with Hal McRae has, has the same sentiment towards him. Uh, 73, you go to the playoffs again, 74, 129 ribbies for Johnny. And then you get to the, to the point where the big red machine really was the big red machine. That was 75, 76, you go back to back world series, uh, victories. Take me through those two years. And, and you'd been in a couple world series and lost, uh, yeah. to me now the, now the difference, how sweet it was. Well, you know, if we lose that series, we're the Buffalo Bills. I mean, let's, let's just face it. But the, the the thing that I'll – most memorable thing in my entire career was walking in that clubhouse after game seven in Boston and seeing uh, Merv Rettman and Bill Plummer and Terry Crowley and, and guys that, you know, it didn't matter if they hit 40 40- – home runs or two home runs or 10 home runs, they were world champions. And to see the look on their face and to see the trainers, to see the coaches, to see George Sugar and Alex Gramas and Ted Klazuski and Larry Shepard and Ted Klazuski and, and, the, and, and to see Sparky and to see the sponsors and the owners. And it, it was what – everything came right there to me. You know, individually, you win these awards, and what are you going to do? You call it, hey, Brett, I won MVP today. Uh, you want to go out for a drink? No, I got to do a podcast. I can't do that. And, <laughs> you know, it's like, so it's like, but and then you get to ride in a parade. And then, but let's face it. I mean, look at that lineup. My, it was it was just, it was made. It was made for the game. And, and people to this day, forever, have come up to me and said, you know, I was a Dodger fan. I was a Giant fan. I was a Met fan. But boy, we respected you, and that was the greatest, you know, co- you know, uh, compliment you could have, is that people really respected the way we had played. And you would wind up watching. You'd be taking batting practice, and the other teams would come out and watch you. And we were fun. We were fun. We had Pete, Joe, and Tony. Are you kidding me? They had. We didn't have ego. We had admiration and respect for each other, and we gave our respect to them. You know, you hear so much about leadership. A leader is a guy who's on time. He's on the field. He's on the bus. He doesn't ask any quarter. He doesn't ask any special thing. He's, he's, he's what he is. He's a player who's dedicated to the game of baseball and will win at any cost and, and make that difference. And when you put that when you put us together, we were – we were pretty, truly amazing. I mean, to, and, and that's the great thing that I have, have memories of. And that's why the love for each of us is it's, it's like we never walked out. When we walk in that deal and we see each other, it's the same thing. It's the same love and respect that we had, 
you know, all those 40, 50 years ago. Yeah, it's it's so cool. And Doggy, you know, Tony Perez, <laughs> he's, he's one of my favorite guys. I mean, he should when, be. When we when we were back there doing doing our thing recently and just seeing you guys and seeing seeing the old the guys, you know, from those 70s, just talking to Concepcion for a while. It just it just makes you smile. Talking to Tony Perez. He's always been one of my all time favorites. What a, what a what a run producer. But aside from that, just it's, he makes me he makes me smile. I come into a room, I'll lock eyes with Tony, and he'll make me smile for whatever's going on in my head or in my world at the time. Tony Perez can always put a smile on your face. A bunch of unbelievable guys on that team, uh, and it's just interesting. Sparky Anderson, how important was he to that Reds dynasty? Well, you know, the first year as a manager, I was going to come out of the clubhouse in spring training. And he stopped me. Now I'm 22 years old. He stopped me. He said, John, I want to ask you a question. I said, yes, sir. What do you think if we took infield over there and batting practice over there and moved the pitchers over on that field and we did this? And I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? I'm a player. You don't associate. I mean, you guys are management. You're up at the top of the world. You're at the top of the, in the penthouse. I'm down here on the lower floors in the mezzanine. And he wanted to know my opinion. And it was the first time I ever felt like a professional. And our relationship started there. I, I, but then he started managing, and he was three or four innings ahead of everybody. And he, he believed in you. He, be, he put his faith in you. And he wasn't afraid to say, John, that's not the right thing to do. And you respected him so much that I said, you're right. And you followed his lead. But it was just uh, we were blessed. And to put all that guys together, and he was able to assemble these guys. And like I said, he would call Pete, Joe, Tony, and myself in, and he would say, what about if we got old Jack, Jack Swenson? No, he wouldn't fit. What about Brett Booney? Oh, yeah, he'd be fine. But you had to have guys, you had to have the Murray Redmonds and the Terry Crowleys and the Bill Plumbers and all these guys and the Doug Flins. And, you know, you had to have these people. They were just important because they had to know their role. And they were quality guys that in the clubhouse and as citizens, but also as, as athletes and being prepared when their game came, when they, when they were asked to play, they were ready. And that in itself, and Sparky was a mentor, a friend, a, a father figure in so many ways, even though he wasn't that much older. But it was just respect that he earned and deserved, and it was easy to follow. Yeah, he, he seemed like just Sparky for whatever reason and never playing for Sparky. I played against Sparky a little bit. Uh, it just seemed like the perfect fit for that bunch. It just seemed like, it, like you said, that lineup, those lineups in 75 and 76, they were just perfect. And it seems like just for whatever reason, Sparky was that perfect guy in the dugout at that time in, in baseball history. Now, don't get me wrong, Brett. You have to understand what we told Sparky. We told him, if you'll keep in the plane, he said, if you'll keep your feet out of the aisle and not trip anybody, we'll make you a star. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and he loved it. <laughs> he understood that his players were the most important thing, that he understood that. And there wasn't like, you know, look, look who I am. I'm the manager. He never did that. He never, nobody, he never asked for all the accolades. He was a humble guy. 
He had a, he had a card when he his his tops card back in the, when he played with the Phillies. He was a Philly. Come on, he was a Philly. Hit two hundred something or whatever. If that, he understood. He was he was he was honored. He gave he was given the opportunity to manage the Cincinnati Reds, and boy, were we lucky. We were we were the lucky ones to have Sparky as our manager. Finish your career. You go through 83, and you mentioned at the top, today's game, it's so different with people. They move around. Um, you're kind of a little, not one of the last, obviously, because nowadays it's probably not going to happen, maybe in a rare, rare occasion. You yeah, know, Lark, Larkin's the last guy, Votto. Uh, you know, the, but I think of uh, Johnny Bench. I think of a Cal Ripken, you know, guys like that that from start to finish, one team, how special was that to you? And and if it ever came up, or did it ever come up, do you ever have an opportunity to leave Cincinnati? Tony Gwynn, he had the opportunity. I played with Tony, you know, late in his career, and Tony was starting to have knee problems. And the, the obvious thing for Tony, you know, Tony Gwynn, he could hit standing on his head. And I said, Tony, the problem is who's going to run for you, you know? And yeah. he had to wrestle with – I can just go to the American League and be a designated hitter, but something inside Tony said, "No, I want to. I want to finish the Padre," and that's how he chose to leave. Did you ever have a chance to leave, or did you, was it even a thought ever throughout your career? No, it never was a thought. I, I I think today, you know, you realize that there's guys in the minor leagues that need to play, that need that are going to be your replacement, and and when. I couldn't catch anymore. I had my elbow in my back and all the stuff and the, the, the car, you know, accident took its toll. And, and I, I decided, you know, and, and I came into, I told Dick Wagner, I said, I'm going to retire. And he said, would you want to go to the Cardinals? <laughs> Just like that. It wasn't anything. Well, Johnny, thank you very much. It was like, would you like to go to the Cardinals? Yeah, he's got a deal. Buddy Herzog wanted me to come over there and hit and play a little first base because they moved me to third base and I couldn't play third base. I couldn't bend over. I couldn't, I had no flexibility. I've never touched my toes in my life for all you people out there without the flexibility and without you have to think you have to touch the ceiling and you have to do all this stuff. Now I never touched my toes in my life and I've never, never had any flexibility and everything else. Part of it was caused a car wreck. Part of it was caused genetical birth, but at the same time, you know, I, I had things in Cincinnati. I was a spokesperson for the bank. I was going to do TV I had a nice contract, but it's still two more years on it. But I said, I'm not earning it. I'm not Johnny Bench anymore. And we have to live to that standard. In fact, John Elway called me. He said, when do you know when to retire? I said, I retired because I couldn't be Johnny Bench anymore, but you're still John Elway and you can still do this. There, there's a level of play and where the level that you have to accept. The people that have problems are the people that are let go and they have to continue to try to prove to everybody that they can still play and they don't come to the realization that you had a great career. You, my gosh, 15 years, 16 years, whatever you've accomplished in your, in your career. It's a hell of a hell of a deal, but the ego says that do it. Or you have an agent that says you're underpaid. You're underappreciated. They convince you that you should be making more when you certainly don't deserve it. I mean, who do you think, you know, these guys, but that's, that's their job. And they continue to, you know, tell these guys, you know, you're not, you're better, you know, you're better than this guy. You should be doing this. You got to play close to home. You got to do this. You, all right, here's the deal. I'm a free agent. Where do you want to play? It's simple. I mean, 
if you want to, if like Machado and 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 uh, Harper went through all of this stuff, where do you want to play? You're going to get the same money. Now you got taxes. You're if you want to pay taxes, out of California. Well, Manny Machado goes to California. Goes to Padres. Three hundred million. He plays over a hundred games because he plays the Dodgers, the Giants, and Oakland. So they're going to tax him at seventeen or thirteen or fourteen percent. So he's not counting what the federal is. Harper goes to Philadelphia, plays a three percent flat tax. People want to come to Florida and pay no tax. I mean, it's like okay, fine. I mean, where do you want to play? Don't be just you know. I want to play on winner. Okay, well then make him a winner. You know, if you're if it's so good, make him a winner. But it's all about you know. Well, I want to be the highest paid. I want to be this, and and you got owners that have so much money that they want to buy notoriety. They think they can buy a team, and then they look at the pot, at the Tampa Bay you know race and say, "Hey, <laughs> maybe you better follow their formula." And That's there's there's great owners out there, but there's a lot of guys with a lot of money, and we know that if you and I were general managers, we could go out and find players that fit. Some of these guys don't fit. You're they right. sell tickets. They sell publicity. They sell all the stuff that you want. The bottom line: these, you know, these these franchises are worth one and a half, two two billion more or more. So you've already got it built in, and you've already made your. You know, these are Forbes five hundred guys that have to go out and buy these clubs. So now, so you know, what's another dollar? Now they've got their own TV shows. The governor or the president showing up to throw out the first ball. They got their radio talk show and their TV talk show. And, you know, as nobody ever knew them before. So it's an ego thing. And the hell, if, you know, if I had that kind of money, I don't know if you know it, but there's a big lottery tonight. And if I win it, I probably won't come back on your show. Just so you'll know. <laughs> you'll, be, you'll, <laughs> you'll, be off, you'll be off the grid, out of pocket, out of pocket. Go through my agent. Yeah, go through my agent. Call call my agent, Brad. Call, call Bobby, Booty. Yeah, would you call Bobby? <laughs> hey, every generation, Johnny, and, and I talk to a, a lot of guys. And I'm really interested in your generation. Yeah, and people ask me all the time, Booty, who, who are the best – who's the best pitchers that you ever faced? You know, my answer now is simple to them. Obviously, you know, Clemens and Pedro and, and Randy Johnson, obviously were as, you know, as good as I saw, but I have a simple answer for him just to shut them up. It's easy. I just say, you know what? In the nineties, Maddox Smoltz, Clavin, that's it. And, and they're usually like, Oh, they were pretty good. Pretty good. They were three legit number ones that all did it in a different way. But I hear this so often about your generation and how great this man was. He recently, recently passed away. How good was Tom Seaver? It was simple. Here it is. Hit it. You can't. Not enough. You won't hit it enough. You know, I mean, it, it, it was such an honest at bat. My first time I faced him. It was such an honest at bat. Here, here this sucker is throwing his fastball 94-95 and just not a great curveball, not doing and everything else, just, just a competitor, one of the finest men I've ever known in my life, a man's man. And, you know, you had the Gibsons, you had the guys, you had – I mean, I, hell, towards the end, I thought Steve Rogers, and nobody's ever going to give him any accolades as to what it was. But, I mean, there's, there's – you know, there's a level of just of greatness that, and it wasn't like you know he had to 
I got, he did 20 in a row or whatever, 20 in a game. I don't 10 in a row. It's, it's all of these things, but it was, as we all know, it's an honest at bat. It's like when you went up there, you faced a guy and it was one-on-one and it was just like, I got better stuff. You might get me, but the next guy won't. And it's, it's the confidence that they had. It's, uh, the respect that the, you gave them. And, uh, man, it was, it was just such a wonderful time. I got him a couple of times. He got me most of the time. And, you know, let's, let's look at averages for just a second. I think I had, a, I had a 267 lifetime. So what does that mean? In 100 at-bats, somebody got 300 hits and hit 300. They hit 30 hits. They got 30 hits in 100 at-bats and batted 300. I got 27 hits, let's say, if I round it up. I got 27 hits and drove in, you know, 40 runs, 100 runs, 148 runs. So, I mean, we look at the averages. We don't want to do that and everything else. Hell, I could hit, I could hit 300 blindfolded if I wanted to. And, and I, the, the year that I changed, I was hitting 351 when I broke my ankle. I wound up hitting 311. You can hit it, but if you're in the middle of the lineup, you, your job is to drive in runs. I mean, you wanted to, you got a guy on, he was coming in. One of, one of my great, you know, Reggie Jackson said, when I'm at home plate, I'm in scoring position. So there were, there were just things that you did in your life and the things that you achieved, the things you might've accomplished. But, uh, yeah, I look back, it's, it's, I was honored to play with so many great players to make so many friends to be a part of so many wonderful opportunities and things in my life. And uh, I have, uh, I was blessed. And I, here I am, you know, 73 still not squatting. Don't, don't get me, don't get me wrong. But uh, the, the things that have, I've been fortunate enough to have in my life, I'm blessed. And now I've got a, I got 12 and 15 year old that I'm going to put to bed in about five minutes. And, uh, and uh, nothing's better than all of those things. I'm, I've been blessed. All-Star in 83, you retire after. I want to get to some of the some of the childhood things that I remember. My first Johnny Bench batter up. I had one before I knew who Johnny <laughs> Bench was. And I remember, you know, there's you could fill it up with water. Well, as hard as I'm going to swing at this thing, that water's not going to do. So next thing, I got a concrete block. Everybody had yep. a Johnny Bench batter up. Everybody. Yeah. And by the way, I want to talk to you about that blue emu because I'm getting a little older now and on the golf course, I'm having problems. And if my products aren't working, I need Johnny Bench to send me some special blue emu. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. If I'm advertising, it works. And I'm going to tell you for 18 years I've used it. I've got people coming up to me in airports saying thank you. I got people every day that I give to. And and since I'm probably not going to get any parting gifts for this show, which is about normal with what you guys do. <laughs> but anyway, now you're asking for Blue Emu. I, I want to tell Blue you right Emu. now, you you put that on before you go play. You can put it on while you're playing. You won't stink, which is people have accused you of at certain times in your career. <laughs> I just want you to make sure that you put it on because it will work. <laughs> we're doing another we're doing it brought to you by yeah tell me about the baseball bunch yeah the was chicken sh- ted giannolis tommy giannolis. thank you thank Tom, you Teddy. tommy lasorda the wizard yeah we did those things it was we did those things out in tucson arizona and little ballpark and it was just you know, and I had, I've actually had talked to the, the baseball about doing that. Now they've started to do these little 
little vignette things with all these players. It just wasn't able to bring it back. Uh, but it was, uh, it was before it's time. We won an Emmy awards. We won stuff and everything else because the chicken was fabulous. The kids were great. I mean, and all our players, my gosh, they were so good at what they did. And, you know, I mean, and you had these guys and they were showing this and they had fun and you saw a side of them. And of course, you know, it was, uh, I I was with the, with the chicken. I couldn't screw up too much because he'd save my bacon, and then the wizard would come on at the end, and and kids learned so many things about the game. Uh, pretty good opportunity, and I really enjoyed it. Eighty six broadcast booth, Drysdale, Musburger, Jack Buck, Vin Scully. You worked with how how much you enjoy that? I loved it. I loved it. I, I, at that time, I was going through shared parenting with my uh, son, other son, my son Bobby, and so I could only work nine nine at most just the weekends that I didn't have him. And uh, I loved it. I thought it was. I thought it was great. I thought it was inside. I was probably, you know, I didn't see things like you know. I I wasn't the drama king. I didn't have to tell you all the stuff that you know. I, I wanted you to see players as they were supposed to be and everything else. They messed up fine. But at the same time, there was a chance that it was human error and that we are all human as as athletes. And, you know, as hard a game as it is to play, uh, we had the opportunity to to really make a difference in in a lot of people's lives, but in our own as well and players around us. So but the baseball bunch was just a great vehicle for all of us to to share some of our insights and share some of the little things just for kids that wanted to see their idols and saying, Hey, do this. Here's Davey Lopes. Here's Mark Quisenberry. Here's, you know, here's, uh, here's Ted Williams. My gosh. I mean, it, I was, you know, it was so good. It was just really special. This is what interests me more than all the baseball. We could talk baseball for days, but this is what interests me. Tell me about the, the, the senior tour events you participated in. Now I'm a golfer. That's my hobby. Never practiced a day in my life. I hang around a five handicap really have never had the desire to get better. I'd rather take my shots. There are days that I feel like, man, I wish I was really, really good, but being a big leaguer, people always talk about, well, could he do this to do this? I said, I couldn't imagine getting on the tee box with a say, you know, in the senior tour for me, it would be a, and lining up against Phil Mickelson, who's on the senior tour now is eligible. What was that like for you? The difference between playing with us in, in a celebrity tournament or lining up with VJ Singh? You know, I played in nine senior tour events. I had, uh, I finished 37th. It was my best when I shot. I first day I, in Cincinnati, I shot 76. I hit a, hit a ball, just missed the green, hit a sprinkler, went in the Creek. I made, made quad. And then the next day I shoot 67 and then I'm playing with Chi Chi. And, and I had so many of those players come up. My first tournament I ever played in was in, in uh, Bunker Hill in Minneapolis. I shot 72 the first day. Now 72. I mean, I'm, a, I'm playing with the seniors. I shot 72 and it was absolutely fantastic. Uh, I got to the level where I was a about a three handicapper, got to one, got to plus two, worked with Michael Grady and Gary McCord, geniuses, geniuses, and sort of developed what I had, developed. I never had a real great chipping around the green. I learned to toe chip. I learned to do some things, and I learned, uh, and then I can't tell you the number of times I played with Arnold. I played with Jack. I played with – 
And they were so comfortable to play with. And I'd shoot 71, 72, 73. It wasn't embarrassing. I mean, hell, it's awesome. You know, to be able to go out there, I bowled professionally. I, um, I went out there and here's the deal. If you think you're good enough, all right, go out there and play with your local pros in your city. Just go play with them. If you can beat them, this is local. You can't beat the seniors in your town. How in the hell are you going to beat these guys? You know, they hit 13 greens and shoot 67. They get it up and down every time. They make their putts and do the stuff. We're not, you know, this is not the not what we are. But for me to have that opportunity and to have, you know, I have a great friend, Hollis Kavner, one of my dearest friends in life, who gave me these opportunities. And I mean, there were so many times that I'd shoot 73, 74, and I would be playing with Arnold Palmer because we'd shoot the same score. And that's low. I mean, because either of the guys are shooting under par. And our line would be out there. We would have 10,000 people following us. They, the they wanted to be entertained. And I would say, come on, Arnold, we need a birdie. And he'd hitch up his pants and we'd go down there. My, my, middle, my son, middle son, Justin Palmer Bench, never a greater man than Arnold Palmer. And I had the chance to play in these events. I had the chance to, and then my hip, my hip went bad. And uh, when I was 54, turning 55, and the hip went bad. And, you know, I had the hip replaced when I shot 72 my first time back. I, I had needed the second one, and it was done. You know, the warranty runs out. It's okay. It's, it's what we are. We have to be something else and some other thing, a level that we have. I, the last probably seven or eight or ten years, I've, I've helped raise over $3 million for charities by, by being co-chairman of tournaments and being involved. I've got over 80 kids on my scholarship fund. I've, I've had a great life. I've done a lot of great things, and I've still – you know, still things to accomplish. I still have a, a seventh grader and a tenth grader to get through, and, and it's uh, you know, how do you how do you take their phone away? How do you get their grades up? How do you do this stuff? How do you go every day? How do you, you know, I'm at five forty five. I'm up in the morning. I get their their lunch butt pack lunch ready. I take them to school at seven ten. I go do the laundry. I do the dry cleaning. I do the shopping, and and I go on to the next thing. I'm a blessed man. Well, Johnny, if you if you find out how to do that and how to really make the, to teach them perfectly with the elect, let me know because I got two seventeen year old knuckleheads that that uh, I'm still trying to figure that out. Well, Pythagoras, the great philosopher and mathematician, said there are three types of people: there are those who choose to be in the arena and go for the gold; there are those who choose to sit in the arena and watch those who go for the gold. And there are those who choose to sell trinkets to those who sit in the arena and watch those who go for the gold. <laughs> Maybe we would demand too much. Maybe we would do it. I was thinking about it. I tell my teachers, I tell the, 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 the uh, president of the school, I said, would you give my kids the answers? I said, why are we hiding the answers? Look, okay, you're a math teacher. And you're, it's your passion. But you don't know English. But yet you want every kid in your class, you want to give them the hardest assignments. We have to look, we have to teach to the level of the mid-student and get them the basics. Here's the chapter, folks. Here's the chapter, kids. These are the three things and four things you're going to have to do in your life. These are the things that's going to make a difference. These are the answers that you're going to have to have. Don't hide. Don't make kids fail. You don't want kids to fail because they'll quit. It's the easiest thing to do in life now is to quit. We see them all. We see kids from every walk of life to the millennials and everything else. They don't 
don't have the stamina to quit. We have we have people who don't want to work because we give them checks. We want to make sure that, oh, we'll take care of you. Yeah. How about standing up? We don't have that so much anymore. And we've got to find ways of doing that. Well, let's just make sure that we have great kids. And every day we try to show them something that this is what I did. And this is how we're going to try to do it and make a difference. And don't you don't have to know it, but you have to apply yourself and learn as much as you can. And let these teachers give you the opportunity to learn and to grow and to be how marketing, how to do sales, how to do finance, how to do a tax return, how to do things in your life that you're going to need, how to do banking, how to buy insurance. No, I don't. I mean, you know, how do we do 3D printers? Thank you. Let's do that. How do we do robotics? Let's let's do that. Things that are going to do it. How do we my I have my 84 kids on scholarship? I tried to get them to do skill schools. I like them. I want them to get a, I want them to get a, be electrician, be a plumber, be, be all these things that everybody needs every day that, cause we're all looking for these people and it, and it's okay. It's really okay. Cause not everybody's going to be an investment banker. That's pretty awesome advice right there. 86 retire your number reds hall of fame. Uh, but the ultimate Cooperstown, 1989. Uh, walk me through that phone call. Well, Jack had already told me. Uh, Jack was uh, the secretary for the for the Hall of Fame and then vote for the Mint voters, and so they wanted me in New York. So it's kind of a foregone conclusion. You know, there's there's American League and National League in those days. American League never saw you. They said maybe see you at the end of your career, and they don't think, well, you're not a Hall of Famer. So there's always likes and dislikes. There's always the people that basically have said, well, Babe Ruth never got 100%. Nobody else is going to get 100%. And you, you get guys that are 100% probably deserve it. Tom Seaver doesn't deserve it. Bullshit. You know, Bob Gibson doesn't deserve it. You know. Oh, okay. So we'll, you know. So somebody didn't vote. For whatever reason, whoever, you know, it's whatever. They, they become what they are. But as Frank Robinson, all the old veterans used to say, this isn't for the very good. This is for the great. And for me to, you know, my, my I, got to, I got to the Hall of Fame with my mom and dad. We drove up in the car from the airport and we got out. I went to the room and I said, I'm going to unpack. I came, came out of the room. I walked down the hallway and there's Enos Slaughter. Hey, I just met your dad. I got the elevator. Pee Wee Reese comes out and said, hey, I just met your dad. I get to the lobby and there's Ted Williams and I just met your dad. And he's got he's got Roy Campanella around the arms, around the shoulders in his wheelchair. And so when I had my introduction speed, I said I introduced everybody. I said, but I'd introduced my dad, but I think most of you have already met him. So I think dad went in. I was just, you know. I had the career to probably deserve it, but my dad was the, you know, what it was. And for him to see be there and to see that, nah, that's all it meant. That's all it was. You know, you know, I can, I can, I can look behind me. I can look at all the things that I've won and done and everything else. And the next thing you know, is I, I'm waking up at five forty-five, and, you know, do I get special treatment? Everybody wants to know, Oh, you're a hall of famer. I said, I don't get on the plane any earlier. I don't have a membership to the, to any of the clubs at the airport. You know, if it were so great, you know, 
people would be walking out saying, Hey, you here's it here, Johnny, take this, take this, take that, take that. It's not, you, you are what you are. I'm a kid from Binger, Oklahoma. I'll never, you know, I'll, uh, I'll be that, you know, for the rest of my life. And I can count my friends, you know, people say on the, on one hand, no, not even close. I got so many friends. I have been so blessed in my life. I got so many people that, that like me because I like them and I'm, I'm there for them. And I have, I am, I am so lucky that I, you know, I have, I've been blessed. And so my life is full. I have an unbelievable life. And, uh, you know, I wish the warranty hadn't run out of all my parts and I could be playing golf and doing stuff, but you know, which is more important hitting that golf ball or taking the kids to school and, and they'll win out every time. It is a rewarding thing. It doesn't seem glamorous, but I'm with you on that. This stage of my life, you know, I'm I'm doing stuff like that. I'm doing laundry. I'm, you know, I'm I'm doing the dishes. I'm getting the kids off to school. Yeah. It is, it's it sounds like oh that sounds horrible. Can the nanny oh, do it? I no, said, no, I, no. I've been through I've been through that time in my life where there were nannies and housekeepers, and it's like there's something there's something kind of rewarding of doing it yourself and being there on a daily basis with your kids and, and just being a big time part of their life. It's, it's a really cool thing. And to hear you talk about it, uh, it, it's, it's a very, it's, it's just neat to me. It's just neat. I had uh, Perez on and he was talking and Tony was so funny. You know, he got that statue and he goes, booty. And I go to the statue and I say, that's a pretty cool looking statue. You know, he says in his accent, you got a statue in 2011, a good buddy of mine, one of my best friends in the game, Edgar Martinez recently had a statue unveiled uh, of him up in Seattle. And I, and I sent out, there was a tweet or something going out. And, and I just put at the top, I said, not too many men get a statue. You got one in 2011. How'd they do with it? And, and how cool is it? Like having an actual statue outside the ballpark. Well, they came to me and said, we want to put a statue up. And I said, no, no, not unless all four of us are up. Well, no, we're going. And I said, no, if Pete, Joe and Tony don't have a statue, I'm not doing it. So they called me back later on and said, we're going to put the statue up anywhere. I said, that's great. I won't be there. If all four aren't up, I'm not, I'm not coming. And so that's how important these guys were to Cincinnati. You know, you know, every town wants to say we made you. You didn't, we didn't, they didn't make us. We made them in so many ways. They didn't, you know, they never made it, never stood in the, you know, in the battlefield, you know, whose face is marred by sweat and dust and blood. No, they never. I mean, we, we, we did that and we, we deserved every bit of that. And those guys deserve even more. And they, cause they helped make me, they were, I was blessed to have all of these things in my life. And, and so the, and I told, and I said at the time, I said, and when the statue was that my statue was up and they had committed to do the others, I said, this is probably the greatest thing that happened. And Morgan absolutely jumped my ass and said, what are you talking about? I said, Joe, I'm just telling you that it's, you know, so Joe, of course, Joe doesn't have a statue as a sculpture. Joe always said it. Mine's a sculpture. you you guys are statues. Mine's a sculpture. And when he said, when he got his, he said, I know exactly what you mean now, because that's going to be there forever to represent what you did in the game of baseball and what you gave and contributed just to the game, but also to the city. And you played and you did it. And it was, 
one of the greatest things, you know, to see that. And they have people send me pictures of them standing by my statue. And I, when I get there, Brett, I, I, when I'm in Cincinnati, I'll go stand at my statue and people will be standing. There. I said, you want to take a picture with me? No, 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 that's fine. We're, we, know, we were just doing a picture with the statue. I said, <laughs> that's my statue. And then, then it's like hundreds of people want to take the picture with the statue. And that's, isn't that cool? That is it's so really cool. cool. <laughs> it is. And these people, and it's something that you can give, you know, without, you know, without anything. It's just part of what you can do in your life. And so, I'll, you know, I'm headed up to the game on, I'm taking some guys with me. We're starting a company and benchmark five and uh, we're looking at some companies and doing some groups and things and everything else. And I'm going to take them with me. And this is a three star, three star retired general. We got the former CFO of Florida. We got a guy at Procter and we're going to go up and we're going to go to the ball game and I'm going to go to the hall of fame and we're going to take them through that and let them, we got one of the greatest hall of fames in all of baseball. And I'm going to, and I'll stand outside and take pictures with people and it'll be cool. And they'll remember the things, whatever they are. And I've got a statue in Oklahoma City, which I'm very proud of, on Johnny Benchway. At, uh, that it's heck, man. So it's many the, things. Johnny, I, it's the it's the coolest. Like I said, <laughs> not everybody has a statue. If you got a statue, hey, you can talk about yeah, World Series ring. Yeah, some decent amount of people have those. You got a statue? Uh, no, I ain't got a statue. You ain't got I'm a statue. Statue's the coolest thing. It's the coolest <laughs> thing. All century team, 1999. The reason this really intrigues me, I was there. It was the 1999 World Series Braves against uh, Yankees. I remember you guys came out in the field. Well, we were getting whooped. We got swept by the Yankees, but you were part of that team. How cool is night? How cool of a night was that? There's only two catchers on that team. I think it's you and Yogi. Yeah. That that was pretty awesome. And, and you know, <laughs> it's when, awesome. When, when we were, when you're a current player, you know how the old timers come back and they'll have pregame, like our softball game. You know, the players say, like, all right, get the old guy. This is great seeing these guys, but we got a game to play. So when you're in your, when you're in your element, it's always nice to see the guys of yesteryear, but you got a, you got a job to do. That night was different, even though it was a World Series. The the kind of I don't know. It it was something about that that night and the All Century team. Even though it was the World Series, I think it was Game Three. Or it might I forget. Maybe Game Two. We stopped and watched, and we said, "This is something special." How cool was that night? Well, I, I think what you say is the fact that the players who respect the game and know the game and know the history. History and know the stuff and everything else, but you're in the you're in the room with these people. I mean, you're they're your they're your peers. I mean, you got to call them peers because you're all on the same level. But to think you've been the greatest player in the the century, nominated and elected and picked and you know, I mean, <laughs> it's it's well, it's mind blowing. And then. Then I then I make the franchise four, the all-time franchise four. I'm walking on the field with Kovacs, Aaron, Mays, and myself. <laughs> what you know, who are you? You know, like who are you? People say, ah, so I'm just I'm just a dad. I'm just, you know, what I am. But it, it I'm hey, I don't know. I mean, you uh, you know, you start 
talking about yourself, it's not, you know, there, there, there's other flaws and stuff and faults and everything else. But I had, I, I, I was successful. I had a great career, had a lot of great things, still having great things in my life. And I'll, you know, I'll always be thankful for the opportunity. And, and truthfully, I made the most out of it. All the awards, all the accolades. You've had a ton of them. We've covered them pretty good in this podcast. Johnny Bench, what are you most proud of? Uh, in so many ways, the all-century team. I mean, they all, you know, the the Hall of Fame, obviously, is there's no greater honor. But to think that, you know, you could be picked as the greatest player of the century and then the, the greatest franchise living uh, the greatest moment obviously was winning the world series and being among 25 players and coaches and managers. I mean, this is guys that you loved. I mean, the, the, man, the coaches that gave of themselves and did everything and, and, but the, the joy will never be exceeded by what I saw uh, in the faces of those guys. When I walked in that clubhouse, um, I, I, I don't know that there can be, you know, anything greater than being all century or all of fame or, you know, uh, I think I'm, I'm so proud of my friendships in so many ways. Very cool. Johnny bench. It was a pleasure. I appreciate you coming on the podcast and what we do each and every podcast at the end, we bring in the voice Dan Levy to ask a question from the fans, Dan, Mr. Bench. How are you? Oh, very good. Thank you so much for asking. Okay. <laughs> David Bakersfield wants to know this. Johnny, can you settle an argument with me and my brother? There's a story that I read about you hitting cans and how it helped you to learn how to hit a breaking ball. Is this true? They were called mill knot. They were, they, were, uh, they were evaporated milk cans that you used a church key. Like in the old days when you, popped, uh, when you opened a beer can. Well, this is what you did with the mill knot cans. And we would have had a bat that we had broke. We'd cut it in half end on the bottom. The barrel was only half of a flat end. And we would throw the tin can. And if you hit it past 20 feet, 30 feet, you had a spot and it was a base hit. If you hit it past that, double, triple, home run over there. And if you hit it into the shed, it had a little opening right, in the, right at the top of the door. It was a grand slam. Well, you hit a can a couple of times and it dents. Then you have sliders. Then you have scurb balls. Then you have screwballs. And by the end of the game, obviously, it's a projectile. I still have scars on my hand where I caught. And you try to, you know, you use the bat and knock down the edges where, the, the you know, they, the tin was sticking up or everything else, sharp edge. And you do it. And we played. And, yes, oh, my gosh. You throw that curveball. You throw that screwball. You were throwing sliders because if you hit it, you know, because every can was different. No matter where you hit it, it always changed into a different form. And then you started throwing it. And as a pitcher, you could throw a screwball. I mean, it was a hell of a screwball. Then you throw a curveball. Then you throw a hard slider. And we played day after day. And we we ravaged through pans. Okay, back back in those days, I guess we were the bag ladies who went, wanted to go through every trash can and find the Milnot cans just so we could find a tin can that we could play with. And another question, this one is going to be from James in Cincinnati. What is your favorite baseball movie of all time? Uh, Field of Dreams. You want to have a catch, Dad? It makes me cry uh, every I time. I will say, I've only cried, well, I've cried in that movie, but I cried when A Field of Their Own. 
a league of their own when the girls drove up in that bus to the Hall of Fame. Uh, yeah, and I'll I'll do it every time. I'll I'll, I'll shed tears because those girls, God, did they love baseball? Oh my gosh, that was so cool, and to meet so many of them that played, it was a great honor. Johnny Bench, thank you so much for coming on the Brett Boone Podcast. We appreciate it, sir. Thank you. Nice to be with you, Brett. Thank you, Dan. Pleasure's on this side of the broadcast, bud. Thank you so much. <laughs> Mailbag. All right, Booner. You know that sound. Mailbag time, Dan. It is mailbag time. What do you know? That's what my watch says, too, Booner. All right. This one comes from Tiffany in Atlanta. Boone, you've actually had so many accomplishments in your career, and you always ask your guests, what's the one that you're the most proud of? What are you the most proud of? Oh, man. Most proud of. I don't know if there's anything, you know, any accolade, any award. Uh, you know, I got I, I got to win some gold gloves, some silver sluggers. I got to go small star games. Um you know, I led the league in RBIs one year, hit 300 a few times. Uh, those are all great things. I, I don't know. I think what I'm most proud of is how I played the game, how I showed up. Uh, if I could play, I'd be there. My teammates knew that. I was a good teammate. I was dependable. I busted my butt start to finish every night. And, and I think, you know, aside from the things that I'm very proud that I accomplished, uh, just – being a pro on the field and giving it to you from 7 to 10 every night. This guy's too humble. Too humble. There's got to uh, be one that you sit there and you look at your trophy case I and you're like, I, I don't, that I, one is no, awesome. I, I, no, because each one, you know, as a kid, I sat there and I thought, what's what do I want to do? I'm going to be a big leaguer. And then I got that call and I went to the big leagues. And then that first all-star game, it's like, wow, now I'm an all-star. Now what's next? I got to win a gold glove. I should have won it last year. Oh, I won a gold glove. You know, I won a silver slugger. I get to go to a world series. Um, so those are, those are all cool. And you accomplish those. If you want to talk about one of my favorite times, one of the most memorable thing, you know, I've hit some walk-off homers that were really cool, some big double plays, some game-saving stuff. I, I mean, I've had a few moments like that. But some of the coolest times are like going to the plate in Seattle in 2001 in the Home Run Derby, you know, an exhibition. It's something that doesn't matter how I perform, but I stepped into the box, and, and I've been fortunate enough to get a couple standing ovations and, and come out of the – come out of the dugout tap uh you know tip my cap to the crowd i've had a times when i've done that and i've heard the crowd fifty thousand people yelling your name when i went to the home run derby in seattle against sammy sosa and i stepped in the box and they announced my name i have never heard a roar like that in my life and to the point where i had to step out of the box and say whoa like, I got chills, and I don't get chills on the field. You know, standing O, big moments, this is a time for me to focus and concentrate. It knocked me off my game to the point where I was kind of moved. So it's weird. Out of all the places I've been and and the things I've got to do in my career, it's, it's goofy to me to think one of my all-time memories is being in that box in a, in a home run derby that means nothing. But it was really cool. And as an added bonus to that question, because you just had me thinking, in radio, I all the time, my wife is in radio too, 
When I go to bed at night, maybe once a week, I will have what's called a radio nightmare where I will dream that the microphone doesn't work or that they're going to me and the microphone starts to melt or they're talking to me in Spanish and I don't know how to do it and I have to go on live on the air to do something and I can't do it. You have to, after all these years, close your eyes and go to bed and have some sort of baseball nightmare that, oh my God, I I have no pants and I got to go hit, I got to go ahead or something like that. Without a doubt. I have the same dream every time. And it's I'm in my locker and I can't get to the dugout. I can't get to the field. And it's like it's it's because I can't walk or my pants won't go on. Right. But I'm in the lineup. They just we just took the field. I'm supposed to be at second base. And I know if I don't get to the dugout in a certain amount of time. The skipper's going to have to pull. You know, you can't start the game without a second baseman. You can't tell them, hold on a minute, I'll be there. I got to go to the restroom. No, it's okay. We got to start the game right now. And if we don't have a second baseman, we got to put somebody else in there. So so the dream is, is I can't get there soon enough and they replace me. So I'm out of the game because I started the game. I was on the actual lineup. So I can't even, I can't even pinch hit or I can't come into the game. I've already been in the game. They had to take me out because the lineups have already been. So that's the that's the dream I always have. I still have it to this day. <laughs> and I haven't, you know, I haven't played in the big leagues in 14 years. And uh, I still have that dream. Like I'm currently playing and I cannot physically get <laughs> to the dugout. And I don't know why I can't get there. Like just put your foot in front of that one and people are looking for me and, and I can see – it's like the vi- I have that vision. Like there's a like I can see what's going on in the dugout, but they don't know there. I'm watching him. And and my manager's yelling, "Where where the hell's Boone? What's he doing?" <laughs> Every we don't know. We saw him earlier, and I'm like, "I'm coming, I'm coming." But I never can get there. It's amazing. That it's is so, that is unbelievable. So bizarre. It's so bizarre. I love it. Well, that's going to do it for this year Boone podcast. My name is Dan Levy. I'm the technical director and producer of the Boone podcast. Executive producer is Rich Herrera. Digital gets handled by Liz Landry. Please share the Boom Podcast with neighbors and friends and make sure you subscribe to the Boom Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. While you're at it, please give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Boom Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boom Podcast, my name is Dan Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>